keep figuring out where to talk into it. It sounds good there. Will you try the top again? Like put the tip of it right against your lips. What, like this? Yeah, just the tip. Is this the tip? This is, is, see, it's the side. I think it's the side side. too. It's definitely the side. Yeah. Just the side. What's after breakfast? What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas. It's weird brunch. Do you think your butt's going to go numb from sitting on the ground? Yes, I also think I'm going to fuck up my back. Um, Also, I had to use CJ's uh, headphones and their earbuds, so I had to clean those out. Ew. Ew. No. I I, I have to do that all the time with my little ear pods or whatever. What did you clean them with? Like, how do you disinfect earphones? Sat tears? Uh, (laughs) Vomit? (laughs) I use the drip from the AC unit. Uh, <laughs> I um, no, I looked it up online and it said to just like use Q-tips um, to clean it out and then it should be fine. <laughs> Did it just mash the earwax into the little tiny little mesh? Um, no, I've actually gotten very good at this since I had my ear infection at the beginning of quarantine Ooh. and had to start cleaning out my adult ear infection. Mm-hmm. Very adult. God, I want to <laughs> fucking die today. Oh, don't die. No. It'll be okay. It's just your bodies that die. I've been, I mm-hmm. uh, shouldn't start with this, but I've been listening to this podcast called Guru mm-hmm. by Wondery. Pick us up, bitches. Um... And I think I've listened to that before. Yeah, it's I think it's new ish, but it's about the guy that and we're all I think we Whitney, I think you've told the story of the guy who um, had a bunch of people in the sweat lodge and folks died and shit under Mm -hmm. the thingy. And like, yeah, yeah. He like Mm -hmm. smoked him out, basically. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, So that I was. uh listening to that and the main reason i started listening to it is because the image for it on uh the apple podcast app is this like the back of a guy like talking to a group of people Mm -hmm. the light is coming from the front of him so you just see like the outline of him and he's holding a megaphone hell yeah which is uh, that was Chris True's deal. So it's like, hmm, what's this about, Guru? <laughs> I'm sure it. this is about some fucked up shit. And it is. Nice. Uh, Any man with a megaphone. Yeah. Suspect. It's just nice to, you know, revisit, uh, you know, heartwarming stories. <laughs> heartwarming. Of death underground. Mm-hmm. Well, I love having a warm heart. I mean, so far, so good. Like... Yeah, my as as far as my heart goes, I'm pretty sure it's warm. You guys, I can't get, I can't, I can't. I'm so excited that we can hear each other and that we're not on Zoom. Yeah, and we this can talk over each other. A miracle. Yeah, we can talk over <laughs> we each, hear other each other again. at the same time. This is pretty. <laughs> the great. dream. What? I said the dream. See, so you can't oh, hear me at the yeah, same time. Yeah, yours is fucking <laughs> up now. I don't know. Well, well you know what? That internet? makes sense. Is your internet it's, shitty? Hmm? It, Probably. You know what, Whitney? Probably. 
Just yeah. because Lisa and I can talk over each other, but Whitney screams, so that kind of short circuits the whole thing. Oh, I'm a that's what it is. Loud person all the time, <laughs> and I can't help it. I was reading our reviews today because I needed a pick me up, oh. and some kind person. <laughs> wrote that we have very distinctive voices. And I just really appreciated that because I hate it when I listen to a podcast and I can't tell who's talking. So congratulations to us on sounding completely different Hooray! from each other. It's true, <laughs> though. Like It is. It's like people can't even tell we're just one person yeah. doing all these impressions. <laughs> what would we do? I don't know what I was trying to do. Throw my voice... <laughs> Do y'all know about that radio that it was a morning like talk radio show in Houston and it was like this dude, I think it was two dudes that did a bunch of voices and one of them did like, uh, they were two white guys and straight white guys and one of them did a, a oh, gaming voice no. and a person yes. of color voice. Didn't they make a movie about this? They may have. I have no idea. Where he is, he portrays a black woman, like a sassy, right. advice-giving black woman. That's a similar, yeah, similar premise for sure. Mm. There is a movie about this. And then like the persona takes off and then he pretends to actually be that person. And then in the movie, because he pretends to be a black woman, he gets to understand black people better. And it's very heartwarming and, and racism is solved. Oh, yeah. Well, if they Whitney. solve racism that way. Whitney, you've never heard of that movie? No, why? What What year do you think it came out? Oh, God. It's probably later than it should be. What? I'm going to say 1997. I think it was last year. It was last year. It was year. last year! Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I was at least going to say like 2005 or something, but hey, no. there you go. And I think there's a scene where he like Mrs. Doubtfire's it, which is oh, very blackface. problematic, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 All the way. He's probably one of those guys that watched White Chicks and was like, well, if they get to do it, I get to do it. <laughs> Whitney, exactly. do not put that oh, on the internet. It can't hear. It can't hear you all. Oh, good. It can only hear me. Cause... Save that for the podcast. The, the real ones will know. That's true. <laughs> But everyone looks real happy, so that's good. You don't look dead on the inside like God is dead, Lisa. God is dead. Everything's on fire. Is God the AC? Because I would yes. agree with that. Like, absolutely. Yes. It's a billion degrees outside in Texas all the time. So It's like, it's not even that it's hot in there. It's just the, the drip, drip, right? drip, drip. A it's vengeful God. fucking maddening. Well, I'm proud of you for being so solution oriented and figuring out how you can like rearrange things and get to the goal that you ultimately wanted to achieve, Lisa. Man, I'll tell y'all fucking what though. If we were still on AirPods, it would not have taken me that long. <laughs> but I was excited. Of course. And this is it already to me sounds so much better. So same. Yeah. We hopefully it'll work. Did we say we all got mics and we're doing this through Squadcast? Maybe they'll sponsor us. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but how cool would that, that would be? That would be great. It would be so cool. Um, that would be so goddamn funny if we're the one it would be, that they're like, you know what? You guys. <laughs> Go you guys, it. we're going to pick you to say you're worth 
$17 a month of comping. That's right. It's just $17 oh my a month. God. Uh, should we introduce ourselves? Oh, Someone well, I mean, you guys intro. know our voices. Fuck off. That's Does right. That we're so distinctive. Yeah. I, I don't know. Hmm. I'm the drunk one. That's what it makes me think of. <laughs> 30 Rock. That's too. <laughs> um, welcome to Weird Brunch. I'm yes. Whitney Lamont. Ow! Okay, I'm Karina Magyar. <laughs> Close up, bitch. No, don't do no, it. No, don't do away, it. Lisa. Don't do it. Say it. Say your name. Her her microphone no, got unplugged. No, she turned her mic off on purpose like she, a bitch. It's unplugged. What did you do? What did you do? Did you hit something? Did you figure it out? I think you have to leave and come back now. Just, just fucking kill her. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go into an ICU and lick everyone's face. Like that's where I'm at right now. That was dark. That was. Let's edit that. That was out. very dark. She's just going to like a regular like cancer ICU though. She's just licking those faces, not the COVID ones. Yeah. Well, just giving kisses. Okay. <laughs> Karina's like, please fucking stop. <laughs> Which I understand. I get it. Cool. Let's talk about drugs, bitch. Drugs! Oh, thank God. Yes. And it's, I feel like it's everyone's favorite LSD. Um, I can't do LSD because I can't do any hallucinogens because I'll fucking freak out. But my whole of research started uh, with something about a silo. And what what kind of silo do you ask? Well, it's a... A grain one? No, a missile silo. It's Cold War era. The government builds this beautiful silo to launch. I have what they were called ICBMs, which means Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. It's a guided ballistic missile within a minimum range of 500 or nah, 3,400 miles. I'm pretty sure nobody who uses kilometers listens to our podcast. Uh, Damn. And, Fuck you if you I'm do. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> uh, so they're designed for nuclear weapon delivery. So this missile. It's great for a little bit, right? And blah, blah, blah. It is built in 1961 in the Topeka area of Kansas and is decommissioned in 1965. And guess who doesn't want to buy an old abandoned missile silo? Literally everyone. So this silo is empty until the early 90s when it gets bought by two people who happen to be doing some fun shit with drug production. Cue our two main guys, Gordon Todd Skinner and Leonard Picard. So I think some people might recognize the name Leonard Picard because he is sort of famous... Is he a spaceship captain? I know. I I had to like Google um a 
video to make sure it was Picard or, and not like Pickard or something like that. So uh, William Leonard Picard. Leonard. He's born in 1945. His parents are super fucking smart people. He becomes a super fucking smart person. He gets an, a scholarship to Princeton, which to me, like, the only people who should be getting scholarships to Princeton are, like, super poor athletes who, like, absolutely need it. But this He's just brilliant. He's at Princeton for a little bit, and he's like, you know what? I am actually more interested in the 1970s jazz scene. I'm going to leave Princeton and uh, go hang out in Greenwich Village and be cool. And there he meets, obviously, a lot of people who are experimenting with drugs. And he's like, this is cool. And... He does that for a while and then decides that he's going to go to the University of California at Berkeley where he gets the job of a research manager in the Department of Bacteriology and Immunology. And he's there until 1974. And that's where he kind of stops and decides... Guess what? I'm going to start making LSD. Uh, <laughs> so he starts working with a group of LSD traffickers known as the Clear Light System. God, of course that's what they're called. Yeah, uh, you know, you got to have it. He, I guess a guy named Nicholas, Nicholas Sand was one of the main pioneers of LSD. And when he got arrested, he like helped fund his, or fund his legal team. And, you know, he's all up in this shit. So the thing about Picard, our captain, he doesn't like to stay in places for very long because he has an LSD lab. And movement is kind of key when you're making illegal drugs and you don't want to get caught. He never really publicly has ever said exactly where he's made his LSD other than the times he got caught. He's first arrested for manufacturing LSD in December of 1998 in Mountain View, California. His laboratory was inside of a trailer. It contained... State-of-the-art equipment, a roto-evaporator, heating mantles, a pill press. He was producing kilogram quantities of LSD. So a kilogram is roughly a little over two pounds. And if you know about acid and LSD, it's like the tiniest little drop on a slip of paper. Like two pounds of LSD would kill billions of people, I would guess. But Lisa, you look like you want to say something. I don't know. Though. Well, it's just, uh, like, um, yeah, I don't know how like the hard hard would go into liquid. That's all I'm trying to figure out. God. So they made them in window pane, which is I a thought you were going to say form. Windows Paint, <laughs> like Microsoft Paint. No, <laughs> they made it in Windows Paint, my preferred <laughs> method of art. But aside from that, 
They made tablets and they also made blotter paper. In 1988, though, oh, sorry, bummer, he gets caught. They arrest him with 200,000 doses of LSD on him. And he... What? Yeah. (laughs) Which sounds like a lot, but considering how fucking tiny they are, I mean, I'm sure it just, like, fit in a... Well, if not his pocket, in, like, a backpack or something. Eventually, uh, five years later, he gets out. He's become a Buddhist while he's inside. Um, But you know what? He is still into making LSD. So he's constantly doing it from 1994 when he gets out into the late 90s when he meets this guy who kind of totally fucking sucks. And that guy's name is Gordon Skinner. And, you know, Skinner is just... What yeah, a name. that sounds familiar too. What yeah. a name. Skinner. So Skinner had spent his fucking life being kind of an asshole he had been arrested for a uh, check fraud like he kept trying to cash forge travelers checks he was delving into cocaine dealing and then became an informant for the dea in like the 80s and like this guy he's just shady as fuck but he does end up meeting our guy Picard, Skinner, Picard, they meet. The year is 1998, and they meet at Jerry Garcia's house. Turns out Jerry what? Garcia died in 1995, but his girl still lived there, and Skinner had been allegedly living there for a little bit. But people in the LSD community tend to, you know, if you're a major professional in your field you meet people and they fucking met and of course it's Grateful Dead related so they decide that they're gonna go into business together and they're like this is brilliant we're both legendary players in our field and uh, we're gonna do this shit They become fast friends and start producing drugs so much and raking in cash. I will say Picard preferred to deal solely in like super, super like thousand dollar bills. He was, they were, what they were doing is they were making. Hold on. Sorry. Yes. What are thousand dollar bills and what are super thousand dollar bills? Super, well, no, (laughs) there isn't a super thousand dollar bill, but there are thousand dollar bills. What? Where? At least in the 90s. Sorry. I'm looking it up and I found an article that said, here's why we stopped using thousand dollar bills. But in the 90s, thousand dollar bills existed. And they were also dealing with a lot of European countries. What Picard and Skinner were doing is they were making roughly a kilo of LSD every five weeks, which doesn't sound like a lot, unless you're considering that a kilo is, what, where did it go? This is what we get for not knowing kilos and kilometers. I know. Well, I don't know the conversion of 
kilo of acid. Was it like a kilo of tabs. blotter paper or tabs? Uh, well, different different kinds because they did it. Okay, so it's a lot of doses for sure. Yeah. So, well, this says forty-one kilograms is four hundred and ten million. So grams. I guess that makes it one kilo is about a million doses, right? Math, yeah. People, please tell sure. me it's yes. a million doses. So they're making a million-ish doses every five weeks, and they're selling it over to this guy named Petaluma Al, who then, yeah, <laughs> guess where he's from? Oh, Petaluma, oh, California. I was going to say yes. Jerry Garcia's house. No, no. So <laughs> Petaluma Al would, so Picard and Skinner would ship their shit to Denver, Colorado, or Boulder. And that's where Petaluma Owl would come in, pick it up, and they did it that way so that Owl would never know where the their spot is. But also, you know, like, keep a little bit of distance. Um, and he would turn it around and sell to a bunch of fucking Dutch people and in Canadian banknotes, that's where the thousand dollar note oh. came in. I th- but America did oh, have a thousand dollar bill. I googed it. I swear. Uh, Just now. Okay. Who was on it? Me. I'm on it. Oh. Oh wow. Thank you. <laughs> no one uses it. It's great. But um, this bill is too loud. I don't want to use it. (laughs) Just get it away from me. Gross. Oh, weird. It was Grover Cleveland. That's I mean, that's a deep cut. Good for him. I mean, it's a thousand dollar bill. Who would even use it? These guys. Yeah. Yeah. Drug dealers. As this is going on. Every five weeks or so, like, they're moving the laboratory. Skinner also has, like, a a guy who's basically almost like his assistant that has been with him for a very long time. I cannot find his name. I'll call him assistant. Um, They're moving around, and Skinner is starting to get more and more paranoid, mainly because he's been arrested so many times and was a former informant to the FBI for some cocaine shit. So by the 2000, by the year 2000, he's like, I'm like really fucking freaking out. And instead of waiting to get caught, he decides that he's just gonna call up the old feds and be like, hey, uh, I know a bunch of shit about all this LSD that's being made. And I want to be an informant so that I don't get in trouble when shit goes down. Fucking snitch city. Super snitch. And they're like, oh, well, okay, cool. Tell us what you know, bro. And he tells them about him and Picard's plan and how they've been making all this LSD constantly. All this shit. And what it comes down to is that... Their lab is in Kansas in, well, it's about to be moved to this missile silo that I started the story with. 
Whoa. Oh, my God. It's like it all comes together. So, uh, Skinner and Picard were, and the assistant, Apperson, that's his name. They're about to move, and while Apperson and Picard are away doing something else, Skinner calls up and is like, hey, yeah, so I already, like, moved the lab into the missile silo we just rented because fuck it. And they're like, that's kind of fucking weird. We don't like this. And so they decide that they're going to move it to a different location because Skinner is being fucking sketchy. Unknown to them, Skinner had begun cooperating with the DEA and had already allowed them to go inside the property to look around. And based on what they had seen during the visit, they get a search warrant. And obviously, they don't know. So Apperson goes and gets a a rider rental truck and goes to the lab to... (laughs) loads up their lab into the rental truck and Picard is like cool I'm gonna like follow you in my car and you know it reminds me of being a very huge unsafe asshole and being like I'm a little drunk will you just like follow me home in my car to make sure I get home safe did anybody do that oh yeah okay Karina just went no and then said yes I also I did the move of like I'll follow you home just to make sure you're good but I was too drunk to drive and then I would hang out with the dude until the next morning oh bitch I get you Mm -hmm. it's a move yeah so they're driving to their other location to set up this new lab and they didn't know that they were being tailed And what a bummer they are. They had been using, like, walkie-talkies to communicate, you know, very under the fucking radar. But they end up getting pulled over by the Kansas Highway Patrol. And the DEA had been like, y'all pull them over so you don't, like, spook them because obviously we don't want them to run. They pull them over and Picard is like, fuck. And he realized he like immediately is like, this is wrong. And he bolts into the woods. He had been like a sprinter in college or something. And they don't, they can't catch him immediately. So he spends like a full day and night in the fucking woods because they couldn't catch him. And then they do get him. But I just love the idea that he like sprinted into the woods. And was like. I love that he lasted that long I know, in the woods. Right? I'm impressed. So when they arrest him. They find six ounces of ergotamine tartrate. Which is used to treat um, migraines. But is also used as an. I think it's an accelerant for LSD. Oh, damn. A stimulant used to create LSD. Sorry. Oh. What's the difference between that, Lisa? Tell me. I don't, I thought you, I, (laughs) typical Friedrich. Um, (laughs) No, I thought that it was like something that would make it more potent. And I was like, oh, they're really trying to fuck people up. It's a stimulant. Is that the part that makes you poop? Probably. So, do you poop on acid? I don't know. I've never done it because I did X one time and, like, couldn't handle it. Oh, 
poop while you're on it. Not. I thought you meant poop <laughs> on it and then take it. No. Poop on to activate drugs. <laughs> then Can you eat. fucking imagine? <laughs> Everybody would do it anyway. Well, I mean, isn't Bacuano or something supposed to get you high? Like, there's some poops that Listen. I think yeah, are loosely It's certain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to spread that rumor anyway spread. and see how many teens on TikTok drink them. The poop. Drink the poop. Ooh. Yeah. No, jink them. Drink the poo. Drink the poo. Jink them. What the fuck is that? Jink them. What's jink them? I don't know um, what I'm talking about. <laughs> it was, it's a thing where you would like huff shit. Oh, it's like the cat piss thing from South Park. Yeah. Yeah. And the frog licking thing from the other one. <laughs> the frog from licking. The world. I've looked into it. That really happens. It doesn't work that way, y'all. <laughs> So, I've done the R and D on that. Yep. He gets arrested. They both do him and his little buddy. And the DEA is like, "Well, this isn't a lot, but we're pretty sure that based on what we saw at the silo and everything that Skinner has told us, we're pretty sure that you've been producing a kilogram of LSD every five weeks." The DEA claims that it's worth $40 million on the street, but they had been selling it for cheaper because they're selling in bulk and they don't want to fucking be dealers. And so they're, it's roughly $2.97 million in the year 2000. And this is what they get charged with. Mm, sorry. Please cut this out. Oh. It wasn't. It's just the Apperson. Please don't cut that out. Picard's little little assistant. He also kind of did his own shit on the side and would make synthetic mescaline. And they raided his house and found five drums of precursor chemicals to manufacture synthetic mescaline. Which five drums is a whole hell of a lot, but... Was it like... Who do I know? That's a whole nother story. What do I know? Who do I... eh, Fuck, it doesn't matter. All right. So Picard and Apperson are found guilty at trial of conspiring to manufacture, distribute, and dispense 10 grams or more of a mixture or substance containing a detectable amount of LSD. And Picard is sentenced to two life sentences. And Apperson gets 30 years of imprisonment, which is crazy to me i just if you're if you haven't like fucking murdered somebody i don't know why you're getting life in prison like if you're not inflicting <laughs> bodily harm say. on somebody i don't know why you're getting life in prison i thought you were gonna say if you haven't murdered someone i don't know why <laughs> and just stop yes, there that's it <laughs> period that if you haven't murdered someone so that's what they get and skinner had obviously pre-planned for his immunity he walks away from the trial from being a fucking snitch scot-free but but in 2004 This motherfucker is arrested for kidnapping, 
torturing and forcibly dosing his former girlfriend with psychedelics. Holy shit. Some Charlie Manson shit. Yeah. His girlfriend also claimed that on top of the crimes against her, he had kidnapped and attempted to kill an associate of theirs by injecting him with various chemicals. And in 2006, Skinner is found guilty and receives life in prison plus 90 years. Fuck you, Skinner. He sucked anyways. (laughs) Got him. The best part about this is that within the next two years after Picard is incarcerated, they said that 90% of the world's LSD is just gone. And it's because they think that he had been making so much of it that it was literally powering basically 100% of the world's LSD consumption. I've read things that say... Yes, sort of, but not really because there's a bunch of new drugs coming on to the market in the early 2000s, like MDMA and like other forms of synthetic drugs. So there's that. However, I prefer to believe that 90% of the world's LSD was, well, consumed in the next two years and then never replenished because Picard was jailed and he's still in prison and will be for the rest of his life and he's probably like the fucking smartest person in that prison he wrote um like a seven almost 700 page autobiography called the rose of paracelsus in 2015 and you can read it if you want Sounds like he got high in prison. I mean, he knows how to make it. So I can I can (laughs) only the materials aren't like available. It's true. No, he's making toilet acid. I was gonna say, if you can make toilet hooch, like why can't you make fucking toilet acid? He can figure it out. I don't doubt him. Why, Karina? (laughs) Why? Well, chemicals like yeah, that's true you can make alcohol out of anything it's sugar what if he's the trustee though that was like yeah i'll clean stuff give me mm. those cleaners i need a pipette to mm. do it and an erlenmeyer <laughs> right. flask and a bunsen to burner have a graduated <laughs> cylinder i could borrow yeah i guess if you could but teach high school science in prison you'd get all the equipment he did teach one of his uh uneducated cellmates how to read and like all this stuff and they became very good friends and his name is morgan freeman and now they're living on an island together. Oh, God. Oh, I get it. Get it? It's get a Shawshank yeah. Redemption joke. Yeah, that was funny. Ha, ha, ha. Thanks, Karina. <laughs> Thanks, fucking Karina. But that's the story of our Captain Picard, who led the LSD fight until the 90s, or early 2000s. Wow. Imagine being some fucking bored-ass kid in Kansas, and you're like, Oh, have you gone up to the haunted silo? Yeah. And then they go and they're like, what the fuck? You can take tours of the silo if you want to. It's not as exciting now. 
because it's just filthy. are people trying to make money off of that silo oh yeah who gives a shit they're making money off the silo i don't know first silo to make money yeah Probably. i mean other than like a, a mill well i guess a mill is they, a mill and a silo is a silo <laughs> fucking whatever it's the man. mill silo it's a mill silo it's a combo it's like a tv vhs combo. it's like a kfc dairy queen taco Ooh. bell i mean here's my million dollar idea okay. a music festival with mm-hmm. uh widespread panic fish mm-hmm. string cheese incident and whatever's left of the dead uh joe at russo is almost dead as well at the silo. In the silo. Silos have amazing acoustics. That's true. I forgot. I'm in one right they now. They also said <laughs> that a good part of the decline of LSD use is also in part because Jerry Garcia died. It kind of started in the mid-90s and it's because Jerry Garcia died and the dead stopped touring and like legit a lot of people who consumed LSD were just straight up following the dead. And that started the decline of LSD use in America. What a beautiful segue you know? <laughs> to my story about LSD use in the 1970s. Oh, oh man, I am odd man out this time. Lisa's is just all about weed. It's not really about <laughs> LSD use. It's just an example two examples of why the 1970s had such a spike in LSD use because it was the only way to deal with all the culture that was being produced at the time. (laughs) Like the only reasonable way to watch half the movies and listen to half the music is with LSD. What's going on That's fair. And like uh, that also explains the interior decorating. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Oh, and the clothes. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And the food. I don't know, man. I was high. I just ordered some vintage Levi's from the 70s from Instagram. Anyways, sorry. Oh, I'm shit. very excited about them. That is exciting. Uh, so I'm going to tell the story of two instances where the 1970s hadn't figured out how to do rights. Like rights for music and film and all that. All these contracts that are now very standardized and negotiated by 50 lawyers who are all entertainment lawyer specialists. In the 1970s, they were just making shit up and stuff got weird. So here's the two best examples. The first one is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Never heard of which it. Which is, is an album by a band called The Beatles. That was released in 1967. In 1970, a producer named Robert Stigwood bought the performance rights for the album, uh, along with a miscellaneous grab bag of other later Beatles songs. Not the recording rights. Robert Stigwood. Performance rights. That doesn't. Right. Not the not the producing rights. Not the recording rights. Not these, like the actual publication rights where you can sell the song, just the performance rights. Okay. Uh, It was an investment uh, that went bad because the Beatles broke up and they had never performed Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band live. And they never would. I didn't know that. So he owned the rights to essentially nothing. He didn't have any live recordings he could sell or anything like that. 
So he was otherwise a pretty smart guy. He founded RSO Records, um, and they had a lot of success later in the 70s when they produced Saturday Night Fever Fever. and Grease. Oh, those are great. I love everything that they're doing now. But he had before he figured that out, he was just sitting on the rights to Sgt. Pepper. So in 1974, he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll make it into a Broadway musical. I have the rights to perform these songs. I just can't have the Beatles do it. And I can't sell uh, any recordings of the Beatles doing it because they never recorded it. So I'm going to make it a musical. Weird purchase. I mean, it's buy anything Beatles you possibly can. That's what I would say. So he... He threw together a musical in 1974 that was kind of a flop. It ran for a year and a half. Some of the Beatles came and watched it. That's nice. What? You know it was only Ringo. I was about to say that. It had to be a Ringo move. Yeah, and Ringo came. Actually, they all, all four came at different times. Oh. Yeah. But it was just, it was a mess. It didn't really have a through line. It didn't really have a plot. It was sort of, you know, hammered in the in the press and nobody liked it. So five years go by, four years go by, and he's about to lose the rights because he hasn't been using them. It was a use it or lose it, you know, put it out there commercially or they revert back to whoever's originally had them, Apple recordings or whatever. How do you use it? Like by producing some type you, of You have album? to like put a okay. commercial okay. work out there. Mm-hmm. So because the musical was, you had to go see it and it was now closed, he was going to lose the rights because he wasn't actively making money on the rights. So he's like, uh, okay, I need to make something more durable than a musical. I'll make a movie. A movie called <laughs> Sgt. Pepper's Lonely, Lonely Hearts, Hearts Club, Club Band. Band. Hey! Mm-hmm. Look, and we could say that together instead of... Sorry. Look, I'll learn my lesson about, you know, bad shit. So I'm going to actually, you know, rewrite it a little bit. Same idea, but I'm going to rewrite it. And uh, he got um, a script writer who had never written what anything a before. great idea. This... This guy's high this guy all the time. All the LSD exactly. from Picard in the seventies. So he he got this guy named Henry Edwards, who had never written a script for film or television, but he had impressed Stigwood with the musical analysis he'd written for the New York Times. So he's like, Well, you know a lot about music, write a movie. And so the guy just spread all the songs out on the apartment floor and tried to put them like in order. And again, this isn't just the songs from Sgt. Pepper. There was a bunch of other ones from um, Abbey Road and the White Album. There's 29 songs in all. He wanted to use all of them so he could keep the rights for all of them. So there's 29 songs in a movie. He just had to put them in order and then come up with what you would show on the screen. Believe it or not, this movie did get made. Did it get made? Oh my God, it got made. It was starring the Bee Gees as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And before you say, wait a minute, there aren't enough Bee Gees, that's okay. The fourth member of the Bee Gees was Peter Frampton. Wow. They brought in Peter Frampton. So it's 1978. He just made Saturday Night Fever. He just made Grease. He's the hottest Mm. producer in the world. The Bee Gees are the hottest pop act in the world. Peter Frampton just released Frampton Comes Alive. He's the hottest 
rock act in the world. He says, fuck it. Talking with his mouth guitar thing. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to get the two hottest comedians in the world. He gets Steve Martin, who just put out two best-selling albums. He's in the movie. He gets George Burns. He's in the movie. He's the only one with spoken word dialogue. He's like, I need more hot acts. There's not enough hot acts in this hot movie. He gets Donald Pleasance. He's an actor. Oh, wait, I know. And he gets Alice Cooper. And then he gets Earth, Wind, and Fire. And then he gets fucking Aerosmith. This is the entire Dazed and Confused soundtrack in like one fucking... Mm -hmm. Yes. And they all have major scenes. They all do covers of Beatles bands. So there's an Aerosmith cover. There's a Steve Martin cover of Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Steve Martin plays Dr. Maxwell. Does he play the banjo as well? No, he just plays the hammer. Oh, shit. (laughs) There's Peter Frampton covers. There's BG covers. He gets Etta James. He gets George Benson. He gets Del Shannon. He gets... Etta... Yes. Everybody. Carol Channing. Curtis Mayfield. Tina Turner. Frankie Valli. What? Yes. All of these people. Donovan. Dr. John. Hank Williams Jr. Bonnie Raitt. Like, heart. Wow. Wolfman Jack, Johnny no. Winter. This is real. It really happened. He got... <laughs> Karina, it sounds like you're having a stroke. She's doing her best, Wolfman Jack, <laughs> and announcing everything. He got Jimi Hendrix's cousin, Nona. Like, it was the whole 1970s okay. in one movie. The movie is made by Universal. Universal is stoked. They promote this movie as this generation's Gone with the Wind. fuck off right it's gotta be good look at all the names that just got thrown of this look who's making it look what's happening it doesn't do well it is complete mess (laughs) nobody can watch it it's awful in 1979 george harrison who did produce the soundtrack uh said i think it pretty much ended the career of peter frampton and the Bee Gees." I don't know why they did that. Ooh, they didn't burn. need to do that. It's like if the Beatles tried to do the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones can do that better. So that's kind of the... Yeah. I mean, George Harrison Ooh. can't really talk. Like, he did the soundtrack for at least one terrible movie that I've heard of from yeah. the podcast, How Did This Game Rain? That's that's that movie. I highly recommend you do not watch it, but look up some clips on YouTube because they are really, really weird. Is it just like one can it to me it's like a variety show. Like I don't know how else you film they something just, like that. They mush it together and every once in a while George Burns comes out. He's the only one who has spoken lines and he tries to explain why you're going from here to there. It, it's really hard to describe. It's okay. very long. <laughs> Same time. Same exact year, 1974, that those Beatles rights kind of got messed up. A movie comes out that we all know and love. Blazing Saddles. Yay! Now, at this point, Mel Brooks is at his height, and he's got all the power in the world. And Warner Brothers is super excited to make a Blazing Saddles movie with him. And in fact, they want to do a whole series of Blazing Saddles movies Kind of like the carry-on films in Britain, where every year they do a different genre, and it'd be a spoof of a different genre. Mel Brooks was like, no, I don't want to do that, but I do want to make Blazing Saddles. So he knows that if he just flat out refuses to make sequels, Warner Brothers won't let him make 
Blazing Saddles. So he has his lawyers write a contract clause in that Warner Brothers cannot produce a sequel unless they make it within six months of the release of Blazing Saddles or make a network sitcom based on Blazing Saddles. That's the only way they get to retain the rights. If they don't make another sequel in six months or make a sitcom, it reverts back to Mel Brooks. Hmm. It's not a bad deal. It was a really smart way to like write that in, right? Compromise. He makes Blazing Saddles. It's a huge fucking success. Everybody loves it. Uh, Warner wants to make a sequel, but they can't pull it off in six months. And Mel Brooks is like, I'm out. I'm already working on Young Frankenstein and shit. I'm out. So they make a, they make a sitcom. Mm-hmm. They make a CBS sitcom. The pilot airs April 4th, 1975. It stars Louis Gossett Jr. as Bart. It does not have Gene Wilder in it. It has some other guys named Steve Landisberg. <laughs> Noble <laughs> Willingham. Steve, Steve Milder. Millie Slavin. So here's the thing. Like, yeah, they produced and released a pilot, but that's just one time, April 4th, 1975. Now they're not using it anymore. Rights revert back to uh, Mel Brooks. Unless they keep making it. So they keep making it. It's produced and written by Michael Elias and Rich Eustace, who went on to make Head of the Class, the sitcom on ABC. They keep filming it. They film it for four years. It, none of these episodes ever air. They're just filming a sitcom to hold on to the rights. So all of the cast, some of whom went on to be on Barney Miller, Louis Gossett Jr. went on to become a fairly famous action yeah. movie actor, came back every winter to film six episodes for four seasons that would never, ever make <gasps> it to air. So these are somewhere. What the they're yeah. somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> In 1996, Steve Landisberg was the first one, or second one, okay, 1989, Louis Gossett Jr. was the first one to kind of talk about the existence of this thing. Nobody kind of knew it existed. And he was just doing an interview on Entertainment Tonight, and he was like, oh yeah, so CBS and Warner Brothers made a deal. The deal was that CBS would get to air Blazing Saddles and any sequels in exchange for co-producing a TV show. For four years, I spent my winter on a soundstage being paid to be in a show that would never see the light of day. That must be so fucking depressing. Like, yeah, seriously, how, think about how that. Depressing, especially for anybody else who. I mean, I assume they didn't really. Like, how far into it did they go? Like, did they get extras? Like, people. Yes, they did. They did. They had full oh director, extras, God. costumers, the whole and thing. It's just so no Why? one can ever fucking uh... see. It. So nobody else can make Blazing Saddles. I mean, thank God. They're doing the Lord's work there. Thank you. Steve Landisberg, who plays like the Gene Wilder style character, said they never aired any of them. It was like a sick joke. If I wasn't under contract, I would have walked. But they were paying me, so I can't complain. It was just weird. There was no studio audience. You just did this comedy from these scripts that people got paid to write. Mel Brooks never talked about it until 2005. Here's the Mel Brooks quote about what happened. My lawyers, bless their souls, came to me and said, Warner Brothers is going to try to take away your control of the movie. Let's put in a crazy condition that says they can't do any sequels unless they make it right away or make a TV show out of it within six months, which is brilliant. They couldn't make a sequel in six months and the movie was too vulgar to be a TV show. So the lawyers put that in, never thinking they'd do it. 
1977, three years later, Warner Brothers comes to me and says, we're going to make Blazing Saddles too. And I said, no, you aren't. You don't have the rights to do that. And they say, yes, we do. We've been making a TV series and still control the rights. I said, what TV series? I haven't seen a TV show. So they take me onto a lot, lock me in a projection booth, and show me three episodes. My lawyers never thought to put in language that said they had to air the damn thing, only that they had to make it. I like that they locked him in. Like, you you have to watch this. I love that Mel Brooks and his lawyer thought that they were being sneaky, and they were. And then those people were like, Fuck it. all right, bitch, you're going to be sneaky. We're going to be sneaky right back, and we're going to film a show that no one will ever fucking see. He said, luckily, management at Warner Brothers changed, and too much time had gone by, and they never did make a Blazing Saddles 2. And as far as I know, they're still making that stupid show to this day. <laughs> so Thank God they never made a Blazing Saddles 2. N- oh. Nobody has seen the 22 episodes that they filmed nobody knows that they're sitting in a lot (laughs) nobody knows if they're in an archive but the pilot did air and a recording of that has made it to you know youtube in various places it's also on the 30th anniversary dvd as a bonus feature it's terrible it is (laughs) so bad it's clear that they knew nobody was going to watch it because they weren't even trying to make jokes there's a horrible laugh right. track. It's it's awful. Yeah. I believe that those episodes exist somewhere. Mm. They have. Like, I mean, I know there's plenty of shit that exists in the film world that no one's ever seen, but I want it to come out. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I don't think it'll be good, but I'd like to see it. I just want to see what that looks like. Like, I'm fast. I can't. When this is over, I'm going to go watch opening day. Uh, for the baseball season, the Giants-Dodgers game, because they're playing in stadiums without fans. I gotta see that. I gotta see what it looks like when Major League Baseball is mm-hmm. being played to nobody. I want to know what it sounds like. I want to know what the I... players look like when they do something good, if they like get excited, yeah. or if they're just like... And there's no one there. To there's see. no one cheering, you know? I mean, I know they pipe in the sound. Yeah, but I was and... listening in the like spring training-ish games they were doing. It's bad. It's worse than a laugh track. You can tell it's like fake mm. and it's a little delayed and it's weird. Which is weird. You think they could just play the backtracking of any fucking baseball game throughout the last hundred years, basically? Yeah. Well, that's what they're doing, but they can't get the reactions right. So someone will like hit a home run and then like 15 seconds later, the crowd will go wild. You know, it's right. it's just fucked up. Home run, home run, screen, screen, screen. <laughs> ah, I hit the home run. Button. Do you think they're going to do a seventh inning stretch? But yeah, like a fake take me out to the ball game. I don't know. They do still play the walk up music for the player that gets everybody hyped up. They still do the little organ shit. There's nobody in the stands. It's so Why creepy. Why don't they have the organist there? I, That's the person you need nowadays. I know. Like, they're That's the, the only one person, person on site in their own little area, and they're just, ba 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 And then nobody says charge. Classic. Nobody says charge. Yeah. But all the other stuff they're doing is great. I love this. Uh, I love this time. It's uh, You do. Uh, <laughs> it's such a, like, dance monkeys situation to me. Where it's yes. like, well, they want to earn a paycheck. I I'm mean, sure, yeah, too. Like, oh, I sure. would love to get paid for comedy, but you know what? Without an audience <laughs> reaction, that's really not comedy. 
it's terrifying. You've done. Have you done any Zoom shows? No, I've just watched because I love a train wreck. Oh my god, it's depressing. Yeah, it's it's just talking into a phone booth. You, I've seen a couple that were really good. I will say that the Velveeta Room did that speed mic one, and that was easily that one was that good. was easily the best one I've yeah. seen. Just because it was like a fuck it, who cares? And I think like yeah, I think a lot of people are trying to be like, okay, no, no, I've got the solution to make it better, and so it's just. Just yeah, stop giving like... a shit and it'll be fine. <laughs> Sorry. I think we should all be doing more LSD because that's how they got through the 70s. I mean, that's true. And look, they made movies for nobody and sitcoms for nobody. <laughs> yeah. So I still really want to try Quaaludes, but they just don't exist in the See, world See, that's anymore. the one that I, yeah. yeah. And... Why can't they exist anymore? Did we pick all the Quaalude flowers? Like what happened to that? It was like a prescription drug and then they fucking stopped making it and i guess it's cost prohibitive prohibitive or something to try and make it on your own and there are other drugs for people to do that are also like mega pink like ketamine and stuff yeah, but like there are other there are other drugs has never been the reason for a new drug not to be made i've researched where to get quaaludes <laughs> And apparently Brazil has a fairly good stockpile of it, and it's possible there. But for real, you just can't get lewds anymore. <laughs> Not since the 80s, which is such a fucking bummer because I would love to try quaaludes. If anybody out there has access to quaaludes, I will. Please do a plus them. one on Please. that. Seriously. I, yeah. Thanks yeah. for That's calling like them lewds. Yeah, I would yeah. love to. Ludes, bro. Like I grew up with my mom. Okay. <laughs> did your mom do ludes? <laughs> I don't um. know. I assume she did. I know that she was doing lots of cocaine in the eighties, and I mean, she was a bartender in the eighties. Like, how do you not? That's true. Or just being a bartender in general. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That too. <laughs> but Lisa, it's your turn. Okay. Well, uh, completely unrelated to anything we've talked about. Uh. Let's actually go to feudal Japan, baby. Um, I wanted to talk about the, and I, this again is set in Japan. So I apologize for all of the ways I'm going to say a lot of these words. Um, so I wanted to talk about the Onobugeisha. Um, they were a, uh, yeah. Thank you. They were a group of women in Japan who uh just I mean for centuries were like badass warriors and a lot of people don't hear too much about them, which is weird. But also not because we'll get to that. The Onobugeisha belonged to the Bushi, which was a noble class of feudal Japanese warriors who existed long before the term samurai came into usage. So mm-hmm. take take that, samurai. Take it, um, take it. Take it all the way up the butt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure, that's so what like, I say. Yeah, all the way up the bushy. Um, <laughs> like their husbands, the women were expected to uh, just full-on commit suicide if the family was dishonored in any way. The women... Uh... Seppuku, right? Is mm-hmm. that what it's called? Si. Uh, as the Japanese say. Si. 
Some women actually use suicide as a form of protest against injustice. The line, the through line here is that women are smarter and stronger. Anyway, one woman killed herself when her husband mistreated her. So she was like, you dishonored part of the family, motherfucker. Watch this. Women in these samurai clans were like 100% taught to fight, like just all the way. Uh, it wasn't like, here's what you do with the pocket knife, little missy. It was, here's all of these different swords. They did, like, the sword of the Onabugeisha was the Naginata. Sounds right, too. Yeah. And if you if you look it up, it looks way fucking cooler than uh, a katana. Because it's like, you have this long staff, and then at the end, it's like this little, not little, but uh, like the curved blade. It just looks like oh yeah the fucking Grim Reaper's coming for you. This hot ass Grim Reaper is Uh-oh. gonna get you. So yeah, any of the swords that you saw in the malls in the late nineties, these women were using uh, centuries before. They were typically trained because their job was to fend their homes and their communities when the husbands were off at war. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of women carried a dagger in their sleeve or sashes, and they could throw uh, real good. They were real good throwers. Knife throwers? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, so the dudes were typically using katanas, basic, and then the women were using the naginata, uh, and uh, the naginata has actually been, like, it's now, like, an iconic image associated with uh, the female warrior. Uh, they also have, like, bows and arrows and all of the things, so. She's a, she's a renaissance woman and a... In Fuck a yeah, dude. Non-Renaissance world, mastering See, all of in, her, in feudal Japan, mastering all of the tools. I'm mm-hmm. a Renaissance girl, and I really Japan feel like you're world. taking the power away from these I'm women. Sorry. But uh... that wasn't me. Karina inspired me. It's her fault. No, I. No, I. I've got you both clocked on that. Mm-hmm. No, she's yelling at me. <laughs> they're trained because, you know, they're supposed to protect the communities, protect their homes. But a lot of these women went into battle with the the dudes, the old katana slingers. Were women doing cool things? Uh, fuck yes. The battle scene forensics have shown that up to 30% of the remains of battlefields from uh, warring times in Japan are female. Fuck yeah. Get them female bones. I mean, I don't want them to die, but also, like, kill, wow. kill, kill, I mean, bitch, do it. Y- yeah. I mean, they died in a very noble way and powerful way. Yeah. I've never heard of these women, so I wanted to bring it here. Let's talk about some of these bad bitches. This woman, she is considered the first uh, on a bagasha. Her name is Empress Jingu. And she actually, her husband was leading an invasion of Korea in 200 AD, and he died. He was the 14th emperor of Japan. He died in battle, and she immediately was like, I'm on it. She actually led the invasion uh, of Korea because he died on the way in battle. And it's said that she was pregnant when she bound her body uh, to wear men's clothes and rode into battle. So <laughs> she was just a great big fat lady then, or a man. Yeah, it's Mulan, but she's the guy that uh, really likes rice. It's the original Mulan. Is yeah. it racist? That it's not. It's not because he does. 
Also, Mulan was from China. Okay. What's the movie? Uh, I didn't say Mulan. It's. I know. Um, I, I like that everything Whitney's okay. like it wasn't me you only got the one um, it wasn't so also legend go, uh, says that she led the the battle successful expedition without shedding a drop of blood and then she continued to rule over Japan for the next 70 years until she was 100 I don't know about that last part actually I don't know about any of them right? what? but I mean that's how much she's revered uh, she is the prime example of the Anabugeisha, and in 1881, she became the first woman to be featured on a Japanese banknote. A thousand dollar bill, babe. I don't know. Oh my god, was it really? <laughs> I was like, that's where they <laughs> That'd are! That'd be so dope. Her and Grover Cleveland are just hanging out on thousand dollar God, bills. can you imagine being like, yeah, it's me and... Grover Cleveland. Fat Grover (laughs) Cleveland. Hey, don't forget Grover Cleveland's lesbian sister was his first lady. That's an episode of Weird Brunch. Was Was he the one that had cows on the front lawn? No. Well, he may... No, there was probably several of those, but no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, Sounds like an Andrew Jackson thing. Get out of here with your cows. (laughs) I don't... I don't think it was. Uh, his hair took up most of the space. Um, yeah. yeah, Lisa, go for go for Andrew Jackson's hair. Let's yeah. take his hair down. Fucking burn. So then, <laughs> so then the uh, Jinpei War happens, and it's basically like a Hatfields and McCoys situation, but like on steroids. So oh. this is between the Tyra or Heike and Minamoto or Genji clans and the the tale of the Heike is you know the the way that this has been shared in history uh before you know history books or whatever like just writing the tales of these things one of the main points uh main people of interest in this war is Tomo Gozen I feel like I'm doing okay she was a servant to the Minamoto clan and leader. He, let's see, sorry. Oh, he was fighting his cousin, Hatfields and McCoys. And in the tale of Tomoe, or the tale of Heike on Tomoe, she, it says, she was also a remarkably strong archer. And as a swordswoman, she was a warrior worth a thousand mm. dollar bill. Dollar bills? Ready to confront a demon or god, mounted or on foot. She handled unbroken horses with superb skill. She rode unscathed down perilous descents. Whenever a battle was imminent, Yoshinaka sent her out as his first captain, equipped with strong armor, an oversized sword, and a mighty bow. And she performed more deeds of valor than any of his other warriors. Okay, okay, I'm turned on. You did it. I'm totally yeah, dude. <laughs> dude, I was like, "What's Karina gonna say?" Uh, oh, she's just like really. What else is she right wearing? Now. Tell me more about her clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Yoshinaka was like, you know what? She's the first two true general of Japan. So like that that's fucking nice. that's awesome. Of note, the on the other side, the Tyra clan, uh, Tyra Banks clan. I was gonna say <laughs> the Tyra clan. Okay. What was she wearing? <laughs> 
<laughs> she was smizing yeah. very hard the whole time. Uh, she, there was another general that was female. Her name is uh, Hangu, Hangaku Gozen. All the Gozens. Then there's the Kamakura Shogunate. Uh, this is where we meet Hojo Masako. And she started running the Shogunate after her husband, the first Shogun, uh, died in 1199. Masako, uh, she then became a Buddhist nun, which was a pretty traditional fate of samurai widows. She continued her involvement in politics. So she got heavy into like the political Game of Thrones situations. And she was actually the first Onabugeisha that became a prominent player in politics. So, you know, the first, I'm assuming, woman at that point. She then took her sons and helped them become the second and third shogun. So now her family is in charge of the shogunate for 150 years or some shit. Man, way to go, mom. Yeah. She's also uh, known as Ama Shogun, which is Nun Shogun, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and she, with her kind of at the helm, because even when her sons were in charge, it was really her. The laws that governed the Shogun's court actually allowed women equal rights of inheritance, oh. which, Good I mean, a, this is in the early 1100s. Or, no, 11. 85 to 1333. Still. Before Europe. God, it's been a long time that these women were around also since it started in the 200s. Oh, yeah. And we're now to the 1100s. It goes on. (gasps) Lisa's one of them. I am. I did have to move a sword to use this trunk that I'm using. But was it the kind that they use? Oh, fuck no. Um, I don't think anybody used this. And it's it's probably from the 90s mall. Um, it's the kind you bid on at Goodwill. Oh, oh. I mean, likely. Yeah. It's not wrong. Misako has also been referred to as the founder of the Shogunate. So season two Westworld fans, you're welcome. Even though the primary role of women in ancient Japan continued to be to support their family and their husbands, they did acquire a higher status in the household. So the laws, along with, you know, getting equal inheritance, um, they also allowed Japanese women to control finances, uh, bequeath property, maintain their homes, manage servants, and raise their children with proper loyal samurai upbringing so these women are busy as hell but they actually do have rights to certain you know household things they're also expected to defend their homes in time of war the so they're seen throughout histories or centuries as being just these kick-ass badass warriors during the 16th century the existence of female ninjas oh this is so dope the existence of female ninjas known as kun oh god uh kunoichi 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 that makes sense okay ninjas were used as killers spies and messengers and were trained in martial arts they were trained in martial arts and an example of one of these kunoichi is mochizuki chiyome 
she was a poet and a noble woman. She was commissioned by a... Are you laughing because I'm fucking up all of these names? I'm laughing because you always choose stories that put you in a position to pronounce <laughs> lots of names. Well, I love a challenge. Yeah. Uh, keeps it keeps you on your toes, you know? Like, fresh, yeah. you got it. So she is a poet and a noblewoman who was commissioned by a warlord to create a secret all-female group of spies. Again, this is in the 1500s. Nice. This is dope to me. She recruited prostitutes and other wayward women and trained them to become information gatherers, seductresses, messengers, and assassins. Mwah. Over time, the underground network of Kunoichi learned to disguise themselves as Shinto shrine maidens, priestesses, or geisha, which allowed them to move freely and gain access to multiple targets. So these women were all over the place doing some sneaky ass shit and it fucking rules. There were like 200 and 300, uh, 200 to 300 of these women. And yeah, they all served the Takeda clan. Over time, so let's see, that was in the 16th century. Over time, the... Samurai women were, you know, kind of replaced by this image, which depicted the ideal samurai woman as a humble, obedient, self-controlled, and above all, subservient to men. This is in the Edo period of the 17th century when this starts to happen. Um, Respecting one's husband and family and burying male children became the ideal woman's most important tasks. Mm. The transition kind of came from, like, as more and more samurai started coming in, they were like, this woman's here for me to go fuck and create a kid. And then, like, they he would go and, like, have sex with them and then just walk out the door and they would sleep in separate rooms. <clears throat> like an animal. Yeah. I mean, that, that I mean, it happened. happened I still pull right? that move whenever I can. It's not... The war- like, I like my own bed. Exactly. I'm gonna go in the other um, So, and then travel during the Edo period was just really, like, fucked up, especially for female samurai. They always had to be accompanied by a man. They had to possess specific permits, uh, establish their business and motives, and they also received, you know, sexual harassment from officials and, you know, oh, you're at a checkpoint? <laughs> The usual. Yeah. Um, so, the you know, the the women that were being uh, spies, it's just not really possible anymore. So they, they kind of take a back seat. The concept of a woman being a fit companion for war was just no longer conceivable. Uh, and then... What happened? It That's just... what always blows my mind. Like, you, there was a, a good level of equality, and then why does it go away? You know, different people become uh get Western into power influence mm. honestly Probably. that i did want to dig into like Edo period and like how what that transition was but i uh did not because <clears throat> i already had a lot of shit yeah the relationship between the husband and wife could be correlated to lord and vassal like it's it's kind of fucked up but these women do still exist they're just being kind of wiped out right so the last time uh, there's they a... still exist? Yes. Wow. Well, hold on. Wow. 
Hold on. At this point, yeah. During the Edo period. Got it. The last record of Anabugeisha is during the Battle of Aizu in 1868. So really, that's... That's over a thousand years. Yeah, that's 1,600 years of... Mm It's one $1,000 bill and six $100 bills <laughs> worth of years. Yeah, so during the Battle of Aizu, a 21-year-old female warrior called Nakano Takeko led a group of female samurai uh, against the emperor's forces. The daughter of a high-ranking official in the imperial court, Takeko was highly educated and trained in martial arts and, of course, the use of naginata Mm -hmm. um under her command the other female samurai fought alongside the male samurai and they killed just a ton of these warriors and it was in close combat so not a lot of bows and arrows and not a lot of not a lot of guns either uh Mm -hmm. that said she did suffer a bullet to her chest And with her last breath, the 21-year-old requested her sister cut off her head so her body would not be taken as an enemy trophy. Damn! No good without the head, huh? Yeah, you can't... I mean, nobody wants to fuck a headless corpse, you know? Like, you need the head there. I would be surprised if that's true. (laughs) Better without the head. You're improbable. We'll put a poll up on on our Twitter. Head? Mm. Headless? You tell... Take this quiz and find out. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Uh, I might make that. That's very fun. So yeah, she is... uh, Nakana Takeko is widely considered to be the last great female samurai warrior. um, And that the Battle of Aizu is considered to be the last stand of the Anabugeisha. Shortly after, the shogunate fell and then the imperial court takes over leadership and then the women were just like full-on not allowed to do shit such a bummer the end let the women do the work it's much better let women do so much better that way but whatever it's so much easier on everybody just let us do it i did read a thing today that was like most of the fossils that are found are uh, male, like so, like mammoths or whatever. Like most of those fossils hmm. are male dinosaurs, and they think the reasoning is because like the male mammoth were like that tar pit looks cool. I'm gonna get in it probably, and the females are like, "Don't fucking do it." Why yeah. Are they Fuck. Yeah. Like they, they. Red's dead now. Literally are saying that it's because of reckless behavior that it. 100% believe it. No question. Yeah. You just have to be dumb to get to be a fossil. Yeah. Like right. You can't. If you're smart, you, you don't get in fossil situations. You log the whole time while the amber just rolled over you and Grew around you stayed there? You fucking dummy. <laughs> That's hilarious. Holy shit, I've never thought about that. 
Like, how does that happen? Let's all go watch Jurassic Park immediately. And before we go, I do want to say Brittany, free Brittany. Yes, thank you. It got moved. Her trial, uh, apparently they had internet issues. And that shit was supposed to happen via Skype or whatever. Okay, but hold up, because she didn't have internet issues. They were waiting on a CPS person to show up. Then CPS person shows up, and then all the fucking sudden, her internet doesn't work. But it was working, but now it doesn't. Because fucking Jamie went over there, and he was like, cut the cord on that internet. Get that Wi-Fi out of there. Huh. Just a thought. (laughs) Just a theory. Okay. I have no idea. But her new... (laughs) I almost said episode, is gonna be in August. What, August 19th? Is that it? I think, yeah. I think that's it. Oh, man. They couldn't squeeze it in before Well, they tried to do it for the 5th, but the 5th didn't work, and I don't remember why. (laughs) I love that you know that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for listening to Weird Brunch. Alright. Yes. Please follow us everywhere at Weird Brunch. Fucking listen to episodes and tell your friends and kiss babies. Give us quaaludes. Like, yeah, also, please give us quaaludes. If you have one, I would love it. And let us let us know what kind of corpse you Sin fuck. ludes, headless, or oh, really? head on. You know, it's like corn on the cob, that kind of situation. Oh, <laughs> Whitney! Headless oh is the normal version, so that's why, you, you know, head on the corpse, corn on the cob the same fucking thing right right otherwise you're just fucking a a tin can that used to have corn in it right (laughs) is that not the headless one that's how you get tetanus okay all right i guess you should yeah i think we're done sleep well everybody 